You're listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com. Good morning. Merry Christmas. All right. Well, today we're going to be in a very familiar place for a lot of you. It is the traditional Christmas story in Luke 2. I will read uh, verse 1 through 20 in a second, but I want to kind of give a little disclaimer first. Uh, I know it's very, very familiar, and, and my goal is to take maybe the Hallmark greeting card element out of it and maybe present it a little more realistically, realistically theologically, and or otherwise. There's, I'd like to emphasize basically the physical element of it, emotional and the spiritual element. I'd like us to look at it through theologically correct eyes and just all the way around. I think it, I think it benefits us greatly. And most of all, I want to emphasize who was this baby in the manger? Who was this baby boy? Who was he? And I think for us, at least in my opinion, it'd be very helpful to answer that question, if I overlay this particular section of Scripture with two other parallel pieces of Scripture, I'm going to go to Philippians and Isaiah, it will give us a better focus as to what we're looking at here. And the reason I'm going into this a little more in depth and taking more time, I really do not want to mismanage your expectations. Not at all. My goal is strictly this. When you celebrate on December 25th, I want us to celebrate that day and be able to enter into praise and worship and thanksgiving in the way that I believe the doctrine of God encourages us to do. And that's about as plain as I can say it. So let's, let's dive in. If you have your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 2 and I will read verse 1 through 20. So, Father, we ask you to be with us, and even as my dear brother Casey so rightly put it, would you be at the center, Lord God? Now, personally, I pray, would you anoint your servant and use him in any way you want to deliver your message? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we go, the Christmas story. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went out to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time for the baby came to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, watching over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. 
This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, what the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Yes and amen. Yes and amen. You notice that the first three chapters, we have highlighted this character, Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus. Let me give a little bit of history about this guy because it's important. He was the most powerful Caesar to ever rule Rome. He was also known as Octavian, but he, let me say this about him. He was extremely intelligent. He was extremely powerful, but he was not a good or moral man by any stretch of the imagination. He ruled from about 63 BC to about 14 AD. So right in this time period is what Luke is talking about. And at the time, he had power over the entire Roman world, which I will tell you included every inhabited land on earth. This was the dude. Rome ran the movie, and this guy ran Rome. He was the first Caesar to have the title Augustus. The Roman Senate gave him that title. And Augustus means holy and revered. Can you imagine that? So before this time, that title was only reserved for their gods, their deity, God small g. That was what the term Augustus was used for. But when Caesar got this title, immediately started to stamp coins with his picture on them. He, uh, he would actually force citizens to bow down when he came by and he'd force you to worship him or call him God, if you can imagine that. This is crazy stuff. He also had this statue made of himself. And you know what the title under it was? Savior of the world. That's no lie. Look it up. Savior of the world. So this guy claimed to be God and he claimed that he brought peace. This is interesting. I will say this to his credit. Although Rome did enjoy this 40-year stretch of peace, and some of you history guys will remember the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace, but it was only attained with an iron fist. Again, it was, it was like the peace that Hitler would give you. You speak bad about him, you're done. No two ways about him. Uh, so obviously it took a lot of money for Caesar Augustus to entertain this opulent lifestyle because he's God. Obviously, God's got to have the best. And the city he lived in, that's God's city. Rome, was, Rome at that time was by far the richest, most opulent city around. Well, what does that take? That takes a couple clamshells. That, that takes some money. That was a big deal. So what's happening is what Caesar Augustus would do, he would squeeze every penny 
out of those that were under his rule in the form of taxes, taxes. So this is where we kind of pick the story up with Mary and Joseph. Man, they're basically poor peasants, but they're ordered to report back to their home of origin for this census. It says census, but all the census was is a vehicle to extract taxes. They got to know how many people live in a town to expect how much money. This was just a taxing tool is all it was. But let me say this in the broad overview. The, the gospel writer Luke, inspired by the Spirit, is emphasizing Caesar Augustus at the beginning of this. He wants us to see the irony of this man who claimed to be God, the Prince of Peace, against the real God and Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, nothing in the word of God has ever happenstance. This is absolutely articulately laid out to draw our attention to what's really going on. So this man who claimed to be God, as I said, was ruling at the time the true Lord and Savior and Prince of Peace came into the world. That is not a coincidence. That is no coincidence. See, Mary carried a baby who, who was not a Caesar or a man that would become a God. No, it was something much more important. She carried the true God who would become a man. Let me read, read uh, verse six and seven. Let's highlight this a little bit. It says, while they were, uh, excuse me, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Boy, how many times have we heard that? And I don't know about you, but in our home, we have these little statuettes. They're this nativity scene. It's like Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, some of the animals, maybe an angel. And we'll put it on the table and it looks... I mean, it just looks cool. You know, it gives you the impression that that scene is comfortable and orderly and sterile and calm for everyone involved. At least it does me. Yeah, my brother right there is shaking his head. You know that, right? We need to break that thinking. We need to break that thinking. This setting was anything but sterile, comfortable, clean. It was exactly the opposite. And I need to say this, guys, I had this revelation while studying for this that I've never had before. I was just trying to think, what was Joseph going through? I usually think of other folks, but what was Joseph going through? Me as a dad, like, wait a minute, what the heck? I believe he had to be a couple things, scared and humiliated. Here he has this 13 or 14-year-old wife, Mary. That's all the older she was, 13 or 14 She's ready to give birth. He cannot even provide a safe, clean place for his wife to give birth. Mm, mm. Now, it is true that the women in that time, 99% gave birth in their home. But let me say this, that doesn't, not, that doesn't mean there weren't medical professionals available if there's emergency. The writer of this gospel is a doctor and I bet he attended many births. Joseph did not have that luxury. Here, Joseph himself, probably between 18 and 20, 
there's this young man preparing to deliver a baby and comfort this 14-year-old wife. Think about it for a minute. And all this happening in an environment of filth and stench of animals in a barnyard. Um, you see, I was right there for all three of my kids' birth. And I'll tell you what, Robin had the most modern of hospitals with the best attending physicians we could get. Let me say this, I was expected to do nothing and I was a wreck. I, I, no, seriously, I was an innocent bystander in this and I, it was like over, it was too much, right? So can you imagine what Joseph is going through? This is crazy. Um, I wanna read you this little piece, this excerpt from uh, Moody Ministries. They put out this magazine and I think they describe this scene real well. Let me read you this. It says, we're all familiar with the haunting simplicity of Luke's description of the birth. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn son. In Bethlehem, the accommodations for travelers were primitive. The Eastern Inn was the crudest of arrangements. Typically, it was a series of stalls built on the inside of an enclosure and opening into a common courtyard where the animals were kept. All the innkeeper provided was fodder for the animals and a fire to cook on. On that cold day when the expected parents arrived, nothing at all was available, not even one of those crude stalls. And despite the urgency, no one would make room for them. So it was probably in the common courtyard where the traveler's animals were tethered that Mary gave birth to Jesus with only Joseph attending her. Joseph probably wept as much as Mary did. And that gets me. Seeing her pain, the stinking barnyard, their poverty, people's indifference, the humiliation and the sense of utter helplessness, feeling shame at not being able to provide for the young Mary on her night of travail, all that would make a man either curse or cry. If we imagine that Jesus was born in a freshly swept county fair stable, we missed the whole point. It was wretched and scandalous. There was sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached up to the heavens for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and acrid straw made a contemptible bouquet. Trembling carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son, slippery with blood. The baby's limbs waving helplessly as if falling through space. His face grimacing as he gasped in the cold air and his cry pierced the night. That's probably a bit more realistic. And for us dads, that, that, that'll get you. That, that's a tough realization. Um, let me say this pragmatically. No child born that day had lower prospects in the world of making it. The son of God was not born a prince, but a pauper. We must never forget, and I want you guys to hear that, this is where Christianity begins and always will begin. It begins with a sense of urgency and insufficiency. Christ himself was our example. He comes to the needy. I'll tell you this, he is born only to those who are poor in spirit. 
only to those who are poor in spirit. Now, Scripture tells us that the creator of the universe came to earth as a baby, as a human. This short circuits my thinking. Follow me here. If you're asleep, wake up. Sorry, sister. <laughs> Listen to this. The one who asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I wrapped the earth in thick darkness is now the one laying wrapped in swaddling clothes. The absolute wonder of the incarnation, the omnipotent, the omnipresent, the omniscient God wrapped in swaddling clothes as a baby. Wrap your head around that. And see, this is where I think the parallel passages are gonna help us out. I wanna bring Isaiah and Philippians in. I love Isaiah. In Isaiah 9, 6, the prophet describes this incident. 740 years, 740 years before this happened, the prophet Isaiah explains it perfectly in Isaiah 9, 6. Let me read that for you. It says, for us a child, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and who, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's exactly what happened 740 years before. All the attributes that the prophet Isaiah gives or describes to Jesus, it's actually absolutely true. He is the wonderful counselor, isn't he? That term is also used the Holy Spirit, right? Wonderful counselor. He is God. He is the Prince of Peace. And there will be a day where the Lord Jesus, the Prince of Peace, rules in a world that will have all peace in the new heavens and the new earth. He is the Prince of Peace, right, brother? He absolutely is. Now, we read everlasting father. And what I want you to understand in the Hebrew, it's taught, it calls him everlasting father because it speaks of Jesus as the author of all creation. Jesus created everything that was, hence the term father. What is not saying is that Jesus is the first person of the Trinity the father. It's just a term and you guys probably know that. But notice this, and this is important. Isaiah is so careful in the order in which he describes this baby. He says, a child is born and a son is given, not the other way around. It would be theologically incorrect to say a child is given and a son is born. That's absolutely not the case. You see, there was a time when humanity was not part of Jesus' deity right? It just wasn't. But so the child had to be born, but the son had to be given because the Lord Jesus, second person of the Trinity, is eternal. There was, never was a time he wasn't, so we ha he had to be given before the humanity came into his deity. So the order is critical there, critical. So this baby that was born to Joseph and Mary was both God and man, both God and man. Let me read you Philippians. Paul writes of this in Philippians 2. Uh, I'll read chapter, chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. It's talking about Christ coming to earth. Formerly, it's called the kenosis passage. Um, 
that's really not important. It, it means emptying himself. He didn't empty himself. But let me read this and let me give a little explanation. I think it'll shed light on this. Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11 say exactly this. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Yes and amen, yes and amen. See, what this passage tells us is Jesus did not forcibly retain his position in heaven with the Father and the Spirit. No, he didn't. He voluntarily gave that up to become a common man. See, it's critical, critical, listen to me here, that we understand that Jesus retained all his attributes of God, every single one. He wasn't half God, half man. He was 100% God and 100% man. I know that's hard, that's hard to wrap your mind around. I've got an analogy, and I know it falls short, but, but let me, I think it'll point you in the right direction. All God and all man, how do we describe that? Let, let me lay this on you. This mystery is best described as possession versus expression of deity. Possession of deity versus expression of deity. Uh, Jesus always possessed the deity. He did not always express it. I'm gonna really put the cookies on the low shelf for you. I'm gonna use me as an example here. So I got a son, Brent, and when Brent was about 12, him and I loved playing basketball. They had a little basketball hoop. We'd shoot baskets. If you were to see us and not know us, you'd look at Brent and I and say, man, those guys are friends. They get along great. Was I still Brent's father? Yes. Did, 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 did I still possess that authority? Yes. I didn't express it. But uh, maybe an hour, two hours after we played basketball, Brent went in and lipped off to his mother. I expressed my position as father. There was no two ways about it. You look at me, I'm expressing my authority. This is Jesus, possession versus expression of deity. So in order, and this is all important for this reason, in order, in order for the death of Christ to be efficacious or for it to be used for our salvation, he had to be both God and man. He had to for this simple reason. If he was just man, that death would not be effective to cover salvation of everyone. I mean, if I died for you, who cares? Good guy, but it's, it's not doing anything. Now listen to this. If he was just 100% God, there'd be no relatability. It's some God, some invisible God dying. He couldn't relate to us as man. See, being both God and man Jesus had the connection of man, but the power of God that anyone who asks him for salvation, they will be able to receive it. So why is this important to us here right now? I'll tell you exactly why. The fact that Jesus is God and man, he has this incredible 
capacity to relate with us in any situation, to sympathize with us. He can understand what we're going through at any time during our life. Let me give you another example. I think you'll get this. Consider this. If you have two well-tuned pianos in the same room, you shut the door. If you play a note on one, that same note will gently respond in the other piano without anyone touching it. Casey would know about this. It's called sympathetic resonance. Sympathetic resonance, it's a scientific fact. So Christ's instrument, if you will, was his humanity. And it's just like ours, except he had no sin. See, when we strike a chord in our life that of weakness or we fall in some way on our own humanity, it resonates with him perfectly. It resonates with him. See, there's no note of human experience that you can play that will not also play in Christ's life. Hebrews 4.15 says this, it gives us some meaning. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Yes and amen. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness in everything. Jesus just doesn't imagine how we feel. He feels it truly feels it. What an incredible truth. What an incredible truth. I happen to think just, just my own opinion, but I look at the own, my own scope of emotion. Jesus felt elated. He felt sad. I didn't think Jesus knew what depression was. I, I, I think Jesus knew what it was to have your friends let you down. The whole scope, the whole gamut of emotion, our Lord Jesus felt. Let me read verses eight through 14 and shed some light on this. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When we look at this in retrospect, I, it's no surprise that God went to the shepherds first and not the high and mighty. This, this is God's way. It reminds me, again, that God comes to the poor and the needy in spirit. You see, according to the Mishnah, it's, it's a Hebrew writing, a collection of laws. According to the Mishnah, shepherds were very, very low on the social scale. Very, very low, this low-class people. Uh, they basically are identified as thieves. The only one lower on the social class than shepherds were those with leprosy, and that was the lowest. So it gives you an idea of kind of what's going on here. This tells me that God, again, comes to those in need, not those that are self-sufficient, that got it all going on. God comes to the poor in spirit, the needy, the lowly. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ are for those that know they need Jesus. 
Let me highlight a section of scripture. I think it'll, it'll resonate with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 29. I'll read it for you. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were uh, before you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Amen. 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 That's me. I, I praise God. Um, and notice the good news. The angel said, this is for all men, everyone. I love that. This means that whoever you are, wherever you are, God can deliver you. God can deliver you. Uh, verse 13 says this, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. I love this. This had to be something to see. I wanna make this real pictured in your mind's eye. Okay, this great company, the word great company literally means a multitude. And you know what a multitude is? The division, uh, the, the it, multitude, as, as best as I did my research, a multitude is not a number you can count. It's not 50, it's not 150, it's not 1,500. It is beyond count. Now picture that just for a quick second. The heavenly host beyond count. But I think theologically it makes sense. I believe every angel ever created by God came to watch this. This is something, the most amazing thing in the universe that had never happened before. God coming to earth as a man, I believe every angel was there to see it. So what would that look like? I think from horizon to horizon, if you looked up, it's angels, man. And this is my own little, this is my imagination, but I imagine they radiated maybe colors, golds, pinks, blues, purple, maybe even they were sparkling when they spoke. It had to just be off the chart magnificent. And, and what a sight as these angels praised God and then brought this message of hope to mankind. I can only imagine, but I do know this, how and what the angel said, the angel said, is significant to us in this. It was first glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to man on whom his favor rests. Notice their message was first directed upward, bringing glory to God. And then it was on our level, glory to man. It was outward. They pronounced this blessing. First giving glory to God, then pronouncing a, a, a blessing horizontally. And I truly believe when God is superintending over your heart, when you go to God in praise, it is always vertical, then horizontal. Don't ever get those mixed up because you're in the wrong ballpark. It is always vertical and then horizontal. Okay, we're heading for home now. Let me read 15 through 20 and we'll call it a day. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. 
When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The, sh uh, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is magnificent. You notice this? The shepherds, after the experience, immediately took off to go find this thing that they had been told about. It was immediate. And in my mind, anyway, I picture these shepherds who all their life, that's all they knew was taking care of sheep. This was their life. But they were looking down into the face of a child that would one day say, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. There's a beautiful irony there, a beautiful irony there. And notice this, there's something transformative that happened as soon as the shepherds saw or met with the Lord Jesus Christ. They spread the word about this child, what Jesus, who he was and what God had told them. Let me ask you, dear friends, shouldn't be the same with us? I think it should be. Do you know Jesus? Spread the word about that miracle. You see, it's not enough that we hear about Jesus. It's not enough that we peek into the manger scene and say, oh my gosh, that's so lovely. Isn't that neat? The truth is, if Christ was born a thousand times over in Bethlehem, but not in your heart, you will be eternally damned. You will have life eternal without the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Christ was born into the world, but he must be born in your heart. He must be born in your heart. I think the Holy Spirit included this story with all these details. He does not want us to miss this point. The real savior is not uh, Caesar Augustus or some great ruler, some great leader in the world. The savior of the world is the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God. He came in human flesh. He died on the cross in human flesh. He was resurrected in human flesh and he lives in that glorified flesh right now at the right hand of the father. Did you know that? Absolutely does. See, we need to understand that his sympathy, his empathy, he had a physical body. He can connect with us. He has complete, complete identification with you. Do you hear that? He has complete identification with you. But I'll tell you what, this baby, God's son, that was laying in the manger, demands 100% allegiance, 100%. He really did come into the world, which means he really can come into your life. I got a question, will you lay your life before him? What I wanna do, I'm gonna ask the prayer team to come up wherever you might be, and I'm gonna pray if the prayer team can come up. And, and here's what I'd like to say, just, just very simply, and no jokes about it, I don't know who's here. If you have not accepted the Lord into your life as Savior, if you're not 1,010% sure, please come up and pray. But by the same token, at this time of the year, there's a lot going on. We're here to pray with you, pray for you. 
we have that sympathetic heart as well. So let me pray and then you'll be dismissed, okay? Father, I just thank you that you sent your son. I can't imagine it, but Lord, I pray that even after today, that we can relate to exactly who the Son of God is and was and always will be better than ever. Lord, let us lay down everything we have. Let us give 100% allegiance to you. Touch our hearts, Lord God. Don't let us be forgetful hearers, but effectual doers of your word. And I pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you, you are dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com.